Hey everyone, I'm Nils Lofgren. You're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. Make me a deal and make it good for me. I won't get full of myself, I can't afford to be. This is small town music, this is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Well, tomorrow's just a song away, a song. Hey everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and joining me today in the Zoom room, God, you know him as a solo artist, you know him from his work with with, uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, and Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, and he's got a great new live album out called Weathered. Please welcome Nils Lofgren. Nils, how you doing? I'm good, Patrick. Good to be with you. Good to see you. Uh, So Nils... You are very prolific right now. You've got, uh, last year, you had Blue with Lou, new studio album, contains songs that you wrote with uh, Lou Reed, got a brand new live album called Weathered, and there's a new Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band studio album on the way. So, yeah, uh, and just here a couple, two, uh, last October, we had a new Neil Young and Crazy Horse album I made with... Uh, Back in that band for a cu- last couple of years, which called was called Colorado, I was proud of. So yeah, I've been, I've I've had a chance to play with some dear old friends and make some of my own music too. It's been good. Did you think after fifty years in the business that in twenty twenty you would have such a such a prolific year? Oh God, no! I this this month September is uh, fifty two years on the road for me, and when I started, uh, I, it never occurred to me to be greedy enough to think. Uh, 50 years later, let alone 52, I'd be doing anything like this. I was very uh, taking it a day at a time, but certainly didn't see into the future like this. So I'm grateful. And, uh, you know, God willing, there's more ahead. Yeah, I mean, for sure. You uh, so much, so many solo albums, so many projects with other people. Uh, Lou Graham from Foreigner and just uh, so much great music out there. I, uh, I implore people to go dig into your solo work because it's uh, it's fantastic. I I really enjoy it, and getting ready for this podcast to go back and listen to those tunes, it w- it was great. I loved it. But let's Good talk. About, <clears throat> let's talk about weathered. You have uh, I don't know. You you have like so many solo albums. How do you choose a set list? How do you pick fifteen songs to record? Well, over the years, I, I've toured a lot. Uh, I hadn't played with an electric band in over fifteen years. So a lot of my touring uh, in the last couple of decades was acoustic based. Me and my friend Greg Varlotta did a duet or I go out alone. And um, but still, you know, I've had hundreds and hundreds of songs going back to the mid 60s. Uh, Grin hit the road professionally at 68, 1968. So, you you know, first off, there's songs that you've you've tried that are, uh, you know, tested and true on the road that always work with a band or acoustic, some things might lend themselves more to the electric band or, you know, the acoustic, but mainly I try to just take songs. I I feel most attached to that point in my life and put together 15, 20 songs. I like to change four or five songs a night. Oh, that's good. And open a request and just kind of improvising within the songs and changing up the list a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I look at the long list of songs and try to pick what I'm most attached to before any given tour. 
And who is the who's the current electric band? Who's on this album with you? Well, we've got um, Andy Newmark is on drums, a dear old friend who's made many records with me. For sure. Uh, Kevin McCormick, great bass player and producer. Again, produced uh, many records and played a lot with us. Uh, my brother Tommy. Oh, there's Dale. Hey, Dale. My brother Tom Lofgren, who uh, been way back to the Grin days. You know, Tommy was my first guitar teacher in our home. I beat, beat up old guitar my dad had, started showing me chords. I was a classical accordion player Wow! from age 5 to 14. And uh, and then the great Cindy Mizell, who uh, Amy and I would see Cindy in the Seeger Sessions band when we'd go see Bruce play. And then, of course, Cindy and I wound up doing enormous <laughs> amount of singing together on the um, Wrecking Ball tour, yeah. the Working the Dream tour, the Magic tour, which was before that. So we spent a lot of time on the road together, singing, putting harmonies together and uh, just becoming good friends and Amy included. So she was, uh, you know, she's usually busy. I was Steely Dan or some very <laughs> high end, deservedly so act. But she had the time and she said she wanted to go out and play with us and sing. We went town to town, worked hard at about five, six shows a week. It's all right, buddy. And uh, we just had a ball. That was the band. I'm going to grab him a treat. I'll be right Sure, back. go do it. <clears throat> What's that guy? What's that guy's name? This is Dale. Dale Earnhardt Jr. <laughs> we call him Dale. He's our 13-year-old. He's a, a Queensland healer, red ridgeless ridgeback mix. How many dogs do you have at the house? You know, we're down to two. We had four dogs and two cats. Wow. And uh, we've, we've had to say goodbye to a lot of them. It's been very painful. Yeah, that's rough. Dale and our little 11 and a half, Dale's 13, our little 11 and a half year old Chihuahua, Peter, Outlaw Pete. <laughs> and uh, we take good care of him, got an extraordinary vet who comes to the home all the time. And uh, we're grateful to have him. We love animals. Well, he looks healthy for 13. He looks like he's going strong. Yeah, you know, we're giving, getting him some acupuncture. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, whatever you, whatever you have to do. Amy's a professional cook, and not only does she cook for uh, us and keep great food in the home, but she makes special dishes for the dogs, too, that, that are healthy and low-fat. The dog's probably eating better than me, Nils. Well, that's, that's, that's a possibility. I mean, you know, we, we're the fast food king of the world here in America, so not everyone's eating well. That's true. Uh, your brother, Tom, older brother? Tommy's uh, just a couple years younger than me. Okay. I'm the old, I'm the oldest of four boys. Born in Chicago. Yep, born in Chicago. Tommy too. And then my when I was about eight, uh, I think Mike, our brother, who Mike and Mark also sing and play great. They're on the record too on Mind Your Own Business. They get together and play a lot. But um, my dad took a job in Washington D.C. So my formative years like eight to 18 or 17 anyway, we're in uh, Bethesda, Maryland and uh, grew up there. The Washington DC music scene was great. Yeah. A lot of, of course in the sixties, there was no internet, there was no cell phones, no computers. Everyone was just learning how to play in front of people. And there was a lot of great music going on. We go to see all of it. And um, you know, it was a great place to grow up and have some bands in high schools junior high school, you know, played all the teen clubs and 
there's a great selection of music on the radio between Stax Vault, Motown, British Invasion, the American Counterpart. It was a great heyday of music. So all the brothers play guitar. Yeah, everybody plays and sings. Actually, they all play a little keyboards, too. Uh, Tommy, you know, when Tommy was, uh, I think, 17 also, we made a deal with our parents because we wanted him to join Grin. And, uh, you know, I had dropped out of high school in my senior year, and that was really kind of a, a bad thing to do <laughs> in my community and look down upon. So Tommy, uh, we made a deal with our folks that he would work through the summer and get his GED and graduate but leave a year early. And he did it. He did the work. So he was able to get a high school diploma and hit the road with grin, which was kind of a radical thing to present to your parents and get, get their blessing, get on. their blessing. Well, that's, they, they must've been very supportive of your talent then. Yeah. You know, they, they danced. My mom and dad danced all the time as a hobby and uh, they played music constantly in the home. And so when we showed an interest, they supported us. They paid for 10 years of accordion lessons, encouraged all of us, came to see us play. They always recognized the healing properties of music. Well, that's great. So, that's very progressive for that time period, for your folks to be yeah, yeah. so we, in we, tune. You know, creative, music-oriented parents. And, you know, they were able to um, – they didn't go with the uh, – you know, the Joneses, they didn't follow the fold of middle America looking down on rock music and all that. They were able to say, um, hey, don't grow your hair long and violate the dress code like the Beatles. <laughs> right. But we really like their melodies and rhythms. No, go ahead. They did see the, the beauty and um, the power. And, you know, well, they know they dance. They know music heals. And we, we were blessed to have them as parents. That's great, especially especially if you're a kid who wants to pursue this as a career. You need that. I mean, I think parents now are supportive of whatever kids want to do. But yeah, that's that's fantastic. I'm I'm happy to hear that. Did you since you guys all played guitar, were you all like uh was there a little like rivalry? Everyone wants to be a little better than their brother and and one guy learns some new trick and then he teaches the the other guys. Is that how it was? Well, you know, I don't remember a, a personal rivalry. We we were lucky to have these really spiritual giants of parents, my mom and dad. And, um, you know, we were, I was grateful. I mean, I was the, the musician in the family with the accordion. And then all my brothers grew up very talented too. Uh, Tommy took to the guitar right away. He was my first guitar teacher. And back then we were just playing for fun. Yeah. Just, you know, learn a Beatles song or a Stone song or something from Motown, Buffalo Springfield, whatever, the birds. And um, in the mid '60s, nobody really, you know, thought you could do that for a living. I mean, you know, you loved Hendrix and the Beatles and all that, but nobody thought you could be a rock musician for a living. One night, I, I went to see—I uh, was 16. I've been playing guitar for a couple of years, a lot, and went to see uh, the Who at Constitution Hall with Hermits Hermits and the Blues Magoos. It was an extraordinary show. The original Who. And then we all rushed across town to see um, a late night Jimi Hendrix experience show. That's incredible. Jimmy was so extraordinary. Pete Townsend was in the audience. He came over from the Who show. And I remember that night uh, for the first time, really, because it never occurred to me that I could be a professional rock musician. And that night, leaving the Jimi Hendrix experience show, I had a, kind of a possession that kept growing. 
it almost possessed me with that notion like hey you may need to try that because uh, <laughs> you love this so much and you know the, my normal self right now we don't do that you know you don't grow up in middle class america and become a you know rock and roll musician and uh, these guys are so great you can't do that but it kept gnawing at me and long story short the possession never left me and here i am 52 years later now when you go to this uh, jimmy hendrix show and you see that pete townsend is also in the audience and he's enjoying the show as a fan how did that make you feel well, you know, it was a very otherworldly experience. Uh, Jimmy, who I wound up seeing quite a bit uh, from that night on, and was my, you know, my favorite guitarist of many great guitar players. It was very, um, you know, it was the light shows of the 60s, the big giant movie screen behind the bands with the psychedelic light shows and the watery amoebas moving around through colors. And he was very loud and powerful and he was in his prime, you know, it was his first tour. He was still happy. Yeah. Wasn't beaten up by the road and drugs. And there was just an aura about him and, and a soul to what he was presenting. He was so in love with it. And it was so groundbreaking that, you know, of course, we were excited. Pete Townsend was there. Sure. But, you know, no one, no one you know, took their eyes off of Jimi Hendrix because <laughs> he was just so mesmerizing. And it was just such a powerful thing. And it was really that night that I left there with the idea I had to give it a try. Well, it paid off. It worked. Yeah, <laughs> I got lucky. I mean, fast forward a couple of years, uh, a few years later, on my 19th birthday, I opened um, a show for Jimi Hendrix with my band Grin. Just to pass my Again, there was no there was no internet or, or video. So back then, uh, to promote a record, you would tour. You'd open up for anyone under the sun. The record right. company would help a bit and charge it to your royalties. So you know, if you never made any money, they wouldn't take come come after you. But it it, it counted against your royalties. We didn't care. We were just happy to play. Sure. And uh, find out we were opening three nights for the great Jimi Hendrix Experience in California, and one of them was my birthday was just one of the highlights of my life. And David Briggs, rest his soul, our great producer and basically my greatest mentor, along with Neil Young, Neil Young's producer, David Briggs, who took us under his wing, got us record deals, and shepherded us through four records and a couple of my solo records. And one of my you know, greatest musical friends and dear friends in life, uh, he egged me on on my birthday. He said, well, you ought to go introduce yourself to Jimmy and say hi. And I was like, I can't do that. But David egged me on, and sure enough, I went and found the Winnebago, knocked on the door. Jimi Hendrix answered. 
I told him I was his opening act and he was the reason I was on the road and I loved him and thank, thanks for all the uh, inspiration. And I was so, so excited to hear him. And he was just kind of smiling, looking at me. And before I, you know, got crazy and overstayed my welcome and invited <laughs> myself car lesson, I thought to myself, you know, be cool, just say your piece and get out of his face. Right. So I and I said, Jimmy, have a great show. Love you. And I started to kind of gently close the door to, to just dismiss myself okay. before I made my welcome. And it was really a powerful moment for me. That's so I wonder if he ever checked out your set. I don't I don't think so. <laughs> I have I have no idea. I mean, we were pretty young and green, but we, you know, we were a good band. And you know, that was the very beginning, early days. We were we were a power trio. Yeah. And then uh, you know, Tommy joined the band and uh, we became a little more fleshed out to, to represent the records a little bit better. Let's get back into Weathered. Where was this recorded? It sounds like it's a small, a smaller club. Yeah, I think uh, we did like about 1920 cities. I think um, everything on oh. this album, it runs much like our set did. And it's probably from about seven or eight towns. Um, you know, I, I give a couple town names, but... The whole album came from seven or eight towns. Okay. I just wanted to pick the vet best versions of kind of a, the set that we were doing gotcha. in general. And um, and I did. So uh, I, I wasn't going to record a live record. I didn't want to do that. You're thinking about it. Yeah. So when, when the idea came up, I said, nah, let's just go town to town and be reckless, jam a lot and have fun. I don't want to think about that. But um, literally a couple of days before we left, my wife, Amy, who understood that she said, look, Nils, please just record it yeah. to have. And we did. And, but I wasn't thinking about it, which was a good thing. I was just out there to have fun with the band for the first time in many, many years for me uh, with my own band. And it wasn't until a few months after the tour, our great sound man, Matt Bittman started sending me some rough mixes just to check out. And I had to admit there was some kind of vibe going on with this cast of characters that was special. Mm -hmm. And uh, at, at, at that point, I decided I better work on it and share it. Well, I love that the album kicks off with a couple of tracks from Wonderland, because that's the uh, that was my introduction into Nils Lofgren as a solo artist. I saw your Across the Tracks video on MTV. I was wondering who is this punky scruffy guy who's doing these flips and rocking and um, across the tracks has always been one of my favorite tunes. And I'm glad that that made it onto the, uh, yeah, the live album. Actually, um, Kevin McCormick and Andy Newmark uh, produced that album with me and played on it. And uh, the great Edgar winter sang the duet on across the tracks. And I realized with Cindy, with Cindy Mizell, we had somebody who could go up high like that. And Perfect. It. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a great adventure with with that cast of characters. Now, as as far as your style of guitar playing, have you always played without a pick? I play with a thumb pick. Okay. 
My hands are free, but um, basically um, this old old guitar case that my dad had. My dad really didn't play, but he had a beat up old acoustic. Tommy started learning on, and there was a thumb pick in it. Okay. And um, I'm left handed, so I started learning to play right handed with a thumb pick, and it was it's like a board. It's very coarse. It does not give it all. So I really struggled with my right side for a long time to to get the hang of it and um it's funny about nine months in with tommy showing me some chords and giving me some lessons i finally started getting the hang of it a little bit with the thumb pick and then i started meeting young rock players who would say oh you must play rock and roll with a flat pick you're gonna have to start over and the idea of starting over After sounding so awful for nine months, I couldn't face it. So I said, you know, I'm just going to stick with the thumb pick, which, of course, as I grew into it, led to finger picking, gave me another strong finger free. Yeah. Pluses and minuses to both, you know, but I stuck with the thumb pick. And I'm glad I learned right handed because, you know, now when I've been in a thousand bars where I've gotten up and jammed and, you know, you can't do that if you need a left handed guitar on your shoulder every time you're walking around. (laughs) That's true. So it, it, it worked out great. And, uh, you know, Tommy got me going. I took some early lessons from local great guitar players that just was based in the blues. You know, you study an Eric Clapton lead, you study a Jimi Hendrix lead. And, um, you know, I actually, <clears throat> one of the lessons that was so helpful, this uh, teacher, Bill Singer, Scotty Ball was another early teacher who played bass in my first couple solo bands. He's now a classical um, you know, heads a music department in a college, a great, great musician, Scotty Ball, still a good friend. But Bill Singer, a uh, great teacher and player, had a band called the New Bedford at Kensington Music. He teach me, you know, again, we learned a Hendrix lead, a Clapton lead from Fresh Cream. Uh, and then we worked on um, Chet Atkins Picks the Beatles, a finger picking, very difficult finger picking piece, uh, Can't Buy Me Love. Where the bass, dum bum 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 bum, the thumb does that and it never changes. It always moves through the chords, doing that exact figure. And then you have to learn how to independently pick out the different rhythm of the melody above that static bass line. Wow. And very very hard to do. I mean, sometimes it would take me all week to just get through two bars. But what it did was it got my finger picking and in, interdependent from my thumb. And it led to a style of playing that I use to this day that, of course, Chet Atkins was one of the very best at. Blue with Lou. That was your studio album from last year. Right. This includes, I think, five or six songs that you recorded, or not recorded, but wrote with Lou Reed. How did this uh, how did this relationship with Lou Reed come to be? When did you guys first meet? Well, way back in uh, I think 70 
eight or nine, I was working on the Nils album, Had No Mercy, Shine Silently, with uh, the great Bob Ezrin, a fantastic producer. Bob and I hit it off and spent a long time making this record on and off for about a year and a half. But we were in pre-production going over things and it was Bob's idea. He said, look, we have a lot of songs we really like that are done, like No Mercy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of good music and I don't think the lyrics are up to your best songs. And I agreed with him. And he said, rather than you keep rewriting, trying to upgrade lyrics, what about co-writes? And I said, well, I don't do much of that. But anyway, I said, well, depends on who the co-writer is, but I'm open to it, depending on the person. And when he mentioned Lou Reed, we kind of kind of laughed and said, well, how are you going to make that happen? <laughs> but he had, he had produced the Berlin album. And he knew Lou. And next thing I knew, I think by the next afternoon, we were taxiing across town in New York City, met Lou Reed at his studio. He was great. We talked for about 20 minutes. He was open to the idea. Uh, He said, look, why don't you meet me in my apartment the following week? We'll talk this through. So I met him the following week, uh, I think down in Greenwich Village, had a great long night together. I didn't realize it, but he loved NFL football. He loved the NFL. And uh, I was always already ready to miss, because I'm a big football fan, Mm -hmm. to miss the uh, Dallas Cowboys-Washington Redskins game. I grew up in D.C., so I was a big Redskins fan. And I'm glad they're changing the name, by the way, if anyone's wondering. It's about time. But but I knew I was going to miss the game way past time. But I knew I'd miss the game because I'm, you know, working on a plan to possibly write with Lou Reed and make my record much better. So... Lou says, look, I'm a big fan of the Dallas Cowboys. We have a big (laughs) arrival tonight. Do you mind if we watch the game while we talk? I really like to not miss this game. And I laughed and I told him my story. So we, you know, we got some drinks and sipped some hard liquor, watched a great football game, rooted against each other, talked well into the night. And it was really Lou that came up with the idea uh, when he realized the history. First of all, we talked and realized that um, he wrote mel- he wrote lyrics all the time mm-hmm. and he felt like he was pretty good at it and he had to work a bit harder on the music. I was the opposite. Music would pour out of me, usually pretty decent in general, and lyrics usually took a, li- a bit more work in general. So he said, rather than get a the traditional method where you rent a loft with an upright piano, two guitars, take some notepads and sit there you know, working six, eight hour a day clips on song ideas. Why don't you send me what you have since you already have all these songs that you like the music and you don't like the words. And let's start with that and see if I get a take on any of it and we'll go from there. So uh, I I thought that sounds like a great plan. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, I have titles and lyrics, some most, most complete. I want to trash all of them. Some of them, half complete, you want me to just la-di-da the melodies? He said, no, send me what you have as is. I understand you don't like the lyrics. So how do you, at this, at this time period, how do you send stuff to Lou Reed? Because like you said, no internet or anything. Back then, the state of the art was a cassette. A cassette, and you would have to no, mail. No you'd internet, have to, way, way. And of course, the next step up from a cassette was a reel-to-reel machine. Right. You know, reels-to-reels are a pain. Not everyone has a reel-to-reel machine in their home. Right. So cassette was a state-of-the-art. And I had a good uh, good old cassette 
boom box with two condenser mics in it at home. And uh, just very primitively with a piano and an acoustic guitar, I put down 12, 13 ideas of songs. And again, sang everything I had, la-di-da, the melodies when I didn't have words. And, uh, you know, sent it off registered certified mail to Lou, got it in the mail quickly. And once I sent it, I realized, okay, now the ball's in Lou's court, whatever he thinks of this tape. And I carried on my way with Bob working on the songs we had, because with or without Lou's help, we had to make the best record we could. And it was about three and a half weeks later, I'd pretty much forgotten about the co-write with Lou because I hadn't heard from him. And I was going up to New York City where Bob Ezrin was for three and four day clips working with Bob, train, take a train back down to Garrett Park, Maryland, where I rented a home. And uh, it was 4.30 in the morning. The phone rang, the landline, no cell phones. And it was Lou Reed. He said, hey, Nils, it's Lou. And I thought to myself, why is Lou waking me up at 4.30 in the morning? (laughs) That's the hours he keeps. I didn't say that. I was happy to hear from him. And then he kind of blew my mind. He said, look, I've been up for three days and nights with no sleep, working on your cassette. Wow. I love love all the music. That's great. Like, wow, that is a great thing to hear. And then he said, and I've called you now because I've just completed after, you know, days and days at this and nights, I've completed 12 finished sets of lyrics I think are great. And if you like, I will dictate them to you now. <laughs> and I, I laughed and, you know, he chuckled too. So I said, well, look, let me put on a pot of coffee, get a pen and pencil. And sure enough, we spent another two and a half hours. You know, I would take meticulous notes as Lou would dictate 12 complete songs of lyrics. So when we were done, you know, I, I laughed. So, so you're telling me you woke me up at 4.30 in the morning to inform me I'd just written 12 songs with the great Lou Reed. <laughs> and he, he laughed and said, yeah, I guess I did. So, of course, the next few days, and, and also he had said, look, I'd like to uh, use three of these songs for my Bells album I'm working on. Please run that by Bob Ezrin because I'd like to take three of these songs and use them right now. And the songs that, if I can interrupt, the songs that Lou took then were Stupid Man, With You, and City Lights. Don't these city lights Bring these streets to light Don't these crazy nights Bring us together Any rainy day You can dance your blues away Correct. City Lights. In fact, he said on the phone call, he said, look, your chorus in City Lights, I love it. I've kept it. I love your chorus. But I've gone and written a story about Charlie Chaplin. And at that moment, I realized I didn't even know that when I wrote City Lights. Right. Charlie Chaplin had a great movie called City Lights. Yeah. Of course, Lou was very into all the arts. I mean, I watched old movies and all that, but I wasn't an aficionado and I didn't even make that connection. So Lou wrote a much deeper song using my chorus and a beautiful story about, you know, the tragic tale of Charlie Chaplin, you know, not unlike in these days, you know, there's these fine people brightening up an entire country that's coming out of a depression and the throes of enormous 
you know, tragedy and hardship, making everyone smile and laugh. And then our government turns around and throws them out and bans them from the country. Right. Great. Of course. And, um, you know, that was one of the songs because Lou did a version on bells where he, as only Lou Reed can do, he recited the lyric, right. the recitation, which was great. Don't these city lights light these streets to light? Don't these crazy nights bring us together? Any rainy day, you can dance your blues away. Don't these city lights bring us together? Charlie Chaplin's cave Well, it flicked away the rain Things weren't quite the same After he came here But then when he left Upon our own request Things weren't quite the same After he came here And the music was kind of this carnivalesque honky-tonk, uh, car- carny music reminiscent of my melodies, but I always wanted to re-record that with the original melody, which I got to do on Blue with Lou, and uh, the great Branford Marsalis played a haunting saxophone throughout it as a favor, a dear old friend. And that's definitely uh, one of the but, highlights for me on Blue with Lou. I really, really enjoy that song. Yeah, thank you. I, I just, uh, you know, when, when I was done with it, we also, too, with Blue with Lou, we recorded, me and Andy Newmart and Kevin McCormick recorded live in the studio. I didn't, I wasn't in an ISO booth. We, we didn't even start recording for eight days. We learned 20 songs, completely learned so we could play them, like a band in a club. And we were in the room together looking at each other, you know, everything bleeding into, the sounds bleeding into each other, because I wanted to get live vocals and get a live track that felt really good, because I don't like overdubbing very much. And that's where you're alone, re-singing a song over and right. over and over. When I'm there with the guys, playing the song with them, I'm much better. And because so we did that. Is that because there's an, there's an energy when you're playing it together? Well, for me, uh, for me, I grew up to be someone who uh, by far prefers being in front of an audience. There's something that happens to me and the people I play with that does not happen in the greatest moments in rehearsal or the greatest moments in a studio scene. So I love that. And the next best thing is playing the audiences, the band, these right. people you respect that are working with you to put this together. And, you know, you're presenting it and you're leading the way with the lyrics. So there's a tension and a good kind of pressure an inspired pressure right. as a singer that works for me as a singer. Because I as, understand as much as you can, as much as you can try to manufacture that in the studio, there's, there's nothing like, that that energy and feel of that live crowd that's what you're that's what you're playing off that's the high yeah for me yeah absolutely and it really affects my performance now i I imagine singers like lou graham or paul rogers don't have that problem (laughs) but i know they love to play live too so they may prefer that also but for me i get much better when i'm singing in a live environment while i'm playing with the band so anyway, we tracked them like that. And rather than add a lot of the keyboards or guitars, the only touches I added was a men's choir, much like the Jordanaires. Yeah, that soft, ooh, you know, mellow vibe that um, Elvis Presley used and Ricky Nelson and then Cindy Mizell. Cindy came and sang beautifully on 
half the record, most of it actually. And uh, she was kind enough to come on the road, but it was a very simple record. And uh, the, the, the touches were more vocals like that, not extra guitars, extra synths. And I wanted to maintain that trio vibe that me and Andy and Kevin had when we tracked the record. Lou, you know, was, was uh, great about that. And when we got the track for City Lights, I listened to it and I felt like I don't have, uh, it's not in my heart to play guitar to this, mm-hmm. you know, but I feel like there should be something. And of course, immediately I thought maybe my friend Branford Marcellus would be willing to add the color and kind of the narrative of Charlie Chaplin, which, uh, you know, I thought Branford did brilliantly. On the Bells album, you you weren't asked to play on those songs, though. He just he just took the songs you guys wrote together and he recorded them. Or did he yeah, ask you? The, no, no. The adventure was a writing adventure. Okay. Lou and I were both quite excited about having 12 songs. Sure. Uh, you know, Bob Ezrin and I were were thrilled. He wanted to use three of them and said, sure, take them. And then we used three at the time. I, I put two more out since then. The rest, of course, uh, I, I once we lost Lou, because I always thought Lou and I would revisit the other songs left behind, uh, I knew that on my next studio record that I had to get those out that no one had ever heard. Well, it was quite, quite a treat when that album came out, because it had been a long time for you between studio albums, I think maybe seven or eight years. So uh, as a fan, I thank you for the new music. I want to talk about um, a song that Lou did co-write that was on the Nils album, the Bob Ezra produced album, I'll Cry Tomorrow. That's a great song. Yeah. Yeah. Lou, Lou has just such a, a beautiful take with words. I remember, you know, the Velvet Underground and his first solo stuff. Just it was always kind of a startling, kind of like an uncomfortable, you know, narrative. But that drew you in. And he he always just had a special way with words. It was a great honor to work with him like that. And, uh, very painless 
co-writing session for both of us. That's good. And who who did win that football game that night? You know what? To this day, I can't tell you. <laughs> I was so blown away to walk out of there with a plan to co-write with Lou Reed that you know, and, and that's very unusual because you know I'm a, I'm a big fan. Right. I still I still am. I was a lot crazier back then, and uh, you know I was so in, in wrapped up in the writing thing with Lou that I forgot who won the game, which is which is a good thing. I'm going to go way back now to 1975, your self-titled solo debut, Nils Lofgren. This song, the song that kicks it off, Back It Up, is that what a great tune that is. I mean, that sets the tone. I know there's like a musical interlude before it. Back It Up is actually the second track, but that just sets up what's going to happen on this album so perfectly. And I love it. Thank you. I, I really, it was a traumatic creative time. My band Grin made four albums. Right. We were getting good. We, you know, were really good on the road and uh, we didn't make money for the companies. And we came, you know, to our horror, found out that there were no deals available with any companies left. We did a farewell concert at Kennedy Center. We were the first rock band allowed to play at Kennedy Center, Washington, cool. D.C. And we tried to go out with some class and style. And, um, you know, Bob Burbrick, the drummer, is still alive and well. And my brother Tommy and my other brothers actually get together and do a Grin Again <laughs> set in Washington, nice. D.C. They'll play around town and do feature Grin music. It was a really powerful chapter for me, and I wish we'd been able to continue. But AM Records took about three, four months to decide whether or not to let me have a solo career or not. And I really didn't want to be a solo artist, but my manager, Art Linson, who's still a dear friend and a big, big movie producer now, that was his dream and he fulfilled it. Um, he said, look, it's the only way to move forward as a recording artist. And of course, to this day, the weathered band is a highlight of that. I work with people and I give them all the rope in the world and I look to them to surprise me with their ideas and inspire me. But um, it was traumatic. And this was my first solo record. Of course, David Briggs, thankfully, at the helm producing. Yep. I uh, just had, had a little cabana I was living at on the beach in Malibu with Art Linson off to myself. Uh, There's a little shack on the ocean. And I got an upright piano and my acoustic guitars. I had my D18 that Neil Young gave me on the After the Gold Rush record, which I made when I was 18. And I wrote for months and months. And finally, with David's help, we decided, OK, we've got like, you know, a dozen really good things here, maybe 15. And um, we made a plan to make the record. Warnell Jones, dear old bass player friend from Washington, D.C., came out and we learned uh, all the songs together. And then the great drummer Ainsley Dunbar came in. And to keep it really fresh, 
you know, because we're now, you know, obviously on bass, you play a lot of notes. So you want to know the songs. Right. And we're in great parts. So we kept Ainsley kind of out of the loop to the last minute and he would just write a little map. So it was kind of very spontaneous. And all of a sudden these things became electric in the studio. And again, I was singing live as much as we could. I sang a live vocal for all of us. I mean, if I had to fix a word or two, I did it. But the theme again was to get a very simple power trio performing live with a lot of space and air in the music. And we were able to do that. And David Frick calls that album one of the best albums of 1975. Well, God bless him. I'm really <laughs> happy to hear that. And I know, you know, Bruce has Bruce Springsteen's often reminded me that he used that as a template for, uh, you know, just some of the ideas and the, you know, approach for uh, his born to run record, which really warmed my heart, but it, it was a special record. And it was also a traumatic and creative time for me because I, I just, couldn't wrap my head around being a solo artist. But again, I realized, well, what, what does that mean? I mean, you still get to play with a band, right? You still, you know, you still don't have to tell people what to play. <laughs> Cause if I'm telling a drummer what to do, we're in trouble. You know, <laughs> I mean, obviously I, I might have a feel in mind, but I let them come up with how they would interpret it and play it. And it usually, you know, always inspires me to give musicians that kind of rope and, and the bands I've been in, you know, whether it's uh Ringo Starr's all-star band, the Neil Young Crazy Horse, E Street Band with Bruce, Patty Scalfa's had a couple great rock bands on the road I've been in. You know, those people are smart enough to surround themselves with musicians that you don't have to tell them what to do. They will come up with ideas that will enhance your songs and music. And of course, you can aim them in a direction and, you know, give a little you know, update here and there to what, what they're thinking. But in general, if you're hands off with great players, they'll surprise you with some inspired ideas. Well, see, that's, what's fascinating to me, especially with the E street band, because currently there's, when you guys go out live, there's so many people on stage right now. You got three guitarists. How do you guys know who's like, for example, how do you, how does it decided who's going to take the solo? Cause you do some solos on some, some classic songs that you you didn't originally play on in the studio, but live they'll throw you the the solo. How does that? How is that determined? Well, it's it's a very loose organic thing. <clears throat> I mean, first of all, it was easy for me because you know I love the music, I love the people, and I love being in front of an audience. So, I mean, from my perspective as a third guitarist, like first of all, Bruce and Stevie wrote all those parts, right? Right. Now, Bruce is singing. So, you know, if there's a part that's intricate, he's not going to stop playing rhythm and play some complicated line while he's singing. If Steve is playing the line he wrote, then Steve's got that line and I'll do the next thing I hear. Like maybe I'll hear an acoustic rhythm. Maybe I'll hear if Steve for some reason is singing with Steve and he's not playing the line. Well, then I'll take the line they wrote. You know, it's just kind of what's the what are they doing? That's what I do. I go, what are they doing? I'll do the next thing I hear. And uh, it's very simple like that. Sometimes I love playing rhythm guitar. Uh, there was one song. I think it was My Love Won't <clears throat> Let You Down. Great rocker. No, it's terrific. You know, I, picked up, I picked up an acoustic guitar and we were at a sound check. Bruce came over and said, you know, I think I want three electrics on this. So I played electric. My first thought was acoustic. But then as soon as we played it once, I thought, well, you got three, you know, like two strats, me mm -hmm. and Steve, 
and a telly with Bruce. And it's just getting a little thin and, uh, you know, edgy. So my thought was, since Bruce wanted an electric, um, I got a jazz master, right? A nice old Fender jazz master. And I bought the thickest strings made. I mean, I bought these strings that were like so fat and thick. They were like boards. And I put them on. And now I had this jazz master with a different sound and a much, much fatter, richer kind of vibe to it that I thought fit in to Stevie's telly. I'm sorry, Stevie's Strat and Bruce's telly. I thought this jazz laid in the middle of those two sounds and gave it a richness. Also, I could really bang on it. And the strings were so fat, I didn't splat them out. Like right. if you hit a string too hard, it'll shut down. and It'll kind of like compress and make a little like, you know, help me. <laughs> it's not a good sound. But when it is that big, a thumb pick's very coarse. So you got to be careful because if you're hitting it too hard, you'll splat them out. But it was, I was able to just live. You got so much rage and energy. I was able to just beat the hell out of them and really lean into it. And it, it kept this rich percussive thing going that I thought fit in as the third electric Bruce wanted much better. And again, that's the freedom. He didn't tell me what guitar to play. He just said, hey, why don't you try another electric? I might want to hear three of them. And then I take my ideas with that cue and, and came up with that. So it's, it's very organic. And it all starts with what are they doing? What's the next thing I hear? I love the excitement in your voice when you're talking about this. This truly music is keeping you young, Nils. I mean, you're like oh a kid. God. You're like a kid. You're talking about guitar strings and i can just it's the look on your face is is uh, exhilarating yeah no you could, couldn't play any lead with these guitar strings but boy it worked for the rhythm yeah you know looking back i mean i was five years old my po folks started paying for lessons and even now i look back and realize that you know i was given a gift mm -hmm. that i didn't ask for that i didn't create you know, between my parents' DNA and some higher power, God's fine with me. I'm very against or I don't like organized religions. I don't. I do not either. <laughs> I do believe in a higher power. and God's yes. fine with me. But I got a gift for music and it was not of my own making. But I also realized that music uh, my whole life has been a, a sacred weapon for me emotionally and spiritually. And I think it is for the whole planet. I think it's really the planet's sacred weapon. It, you know, heals and, and unites billions of people daily, whether it's with their own being, their own soul, with, with their brother, sister, friends. It's just a common bond that is like nothing else. It's very magical and ethereal. And, you know, to me, it's, it's saved my life. Yeah. And uh, it's also, you know, something I've been able to do. It remains one of my hobbies. 
as I've grown older. I mean, Amy, you know, we've got our guitars here. She's got an upright piano, belonged to her dad. Uh, I got accordions, got a lever harp. I got uh, guitars just sitting around the house. So at any point, you know, I don't practice enough, I don't think. Uh, but there's always an instrument nearby to pick up and noodle around and just for fun. Yeah. You know, I, I, I long ago gave myself permission. Like, I don't feel like being a professional musician every day and writing or creating something that I'm going to try to create and, and ask people to buy. Sometimes I don't feel like that. So that doesn't mean I shouldn't pick it up and enjoy it. Right. It's a hobby. Just play for fun or just noodle around. A lot of times, too, and, you know, we're going through a really dark chapter with the the environment uh, with COVID, with these awful, you know, political leaders that are, you know, just all these dictatorships around the world. And uh, I just sometimes I got a little bit, I'm too blue to really write or take on making another record, which I have to start doing soon. So what I'll do, I'll take my little phone. I got a little guitar in the house with a dinky little two inch distorted speaker and I'll put on Muddy Waters or BB King or Howlin' Wolf you know, or Bruce or Neil or, or, you know, Albert King and just play the blues, you know, just 20 minutes here, 20 minutes yeah. there, play and um, not worry about it turning it in, into anything. And uh, just to exercise that kind of part of my brain, because music truly is, you know, a great healing force for the whole planet and has been been in my life. So since I was very, very young. Well, for, yeah, for me, Neil, if someone tells me, you know, oh, I don't like sports or I don't like comedy movies, you know, that's cool. But if someone tells me they don't like music, I got red flags all over that person. Yeah. You know, yeah. People that that's a weird thing. It is a yeah. very weird thing. I haven't really ever delved deeply into someone who said that, but I, I'm always suspicious. People that don't like music or dogs. Yeah. Something's up. I mean, I, I can I can understand. Uh, it's look, I love horses, but I'm a little scared of them. They're so big. Yeah. But I've been out a few of them, and I just kind of I'm in awe because of their their grandeur and size. But I've had dogs and cats in my life, my whole life, and any animal. You know, when we were in Australia, you know, people would bring in these different kinds of animals for us to you know meet backstage, which was kind of cool. But uh, not from zoos, more from, you know, have, you know, where they roam freely. Right. And I'm always just fascinated. I mean, dogs are they, they teach just love and acceptance every day. And, uh, you know, I try to learn from my dogs. I mean, we should all pay more attention to animals and we'd be much better off if we did. Uh, I agree. And I'm, I'm I like dogs, but I, we we have a cat. So I'm a cat guy, but we're cool. Uh, we had <laughs> we had two cats, you know. Frank was named after Frank Sinatra and Joey. Joey was named after Joey Buttafuoco. <laughs> and uh, they, we had them for 11 years. They were great to have in our lives. They coexisted with four dogs. Perfect. We got a little once in a while, but they managed to, you know, get along. And, um, you know, we miss them. But right now we got two dogs. And so grateful to have them in our home. Nils, there's so much stuff to cover. I want to I want to make sure I hit on a couple of things. When you got signed as the uh, as a solo artist to A and M, was that were you signed to like a five album deal or was it an album by album thing? Yeah, you know the record deals have always mine have been lopsided in the favor of the company, which is understandable because I never made them a lot of money, mm -hmm. and so they'd be one out one album options. Okay, make an album. Here's a budget, and then um, we decide in a year if we are going to pick up the option. 
and guarantee you another budget for the next record. Okay. So on and so forth. So I wound up making, I don't know, if it was three or four albums for A&M. And then I uh, moved over to MCA Backstreet's Tom Petty's label. Yes, absolutely. For the Wonderland album. And uh, and then, you know, fast forward to the early 80s, uh, same kind of thing with Grin. You know, I made a lot of records, got some good reviews, toured constantly. But the records weren't making the companies much money and the deals dried up. And I had I was really struggling to get any record deal at all. And I kind of hit a real funk in the early 80s. And, um, you know, while I was making my way, trying to find a finally found a smaller company and I was going to make the uh, I was going to I was talking to Lance Quinn, uh, the flip album, we yeah. were talking about songs and he was talking about putting a little label together, try to start getting my um, life, musical life back together. It was very startling and, and depressing for me because all the companies like, hey, you're a dinosaur been around forever never made us a lot of money you're very talented go away yeah and you're not in you're not an old person at that point you're no. still vital and young yeah exactly it was quite scary but uh you know i would i bruce and i did an bruce springsteen and i did an audition night in 1970 he was with steel mill i was with grin we both did like 20 minute sets for bill graham the fillmore west yeah we were two of the acts trying to get an opening act job. And I started following Bruce since then. I was a big fan. I'd go see him play in the clubs, the sports arenas. He's always friendly, stayed in touch. And uh, I, I gave him a call and he invited me up to his house in Jersey. And we hung out for a weekend. He played the Born USA album for me, which was a fabulous record. And um, we were, you know, we we're both bachelors. We were watching TV, MTV having a dinner one night. We went to clubs and jammed every night, which I love. You know, that's I love about Bruce. We just get up and jam with bands, bar bands. But uh, they, they were talking about Steve Van Zandt, Stevie maybe going solo. And, you know, Bruce might, there might be some people being considered to take his place. And uh, I was startled, you know, and I I, I said, what, what's up with that? And Bruce, Bruce was visibly, uh, you know, upset about it right he just kind of dismissed and said that's ah, a bunch of bull that's you know there's nothing to that and um he was annoyed by it but we just carried on but you know i said well geez if you ever needed a guitar player i'd certainly want an audition okay so you threw your hat into the ring that was my question well, the, the, it started with the tv bit mm -hmm. it wasn't an idea in my head right didn't even think of that the mtv he threw it out at it bruce said it was it was um, not true. I was annoyed by it, but I took the opportunity to just say, well, man, if, if you ever um, need a guitar player, I'd certainly want an audition. And he said, really? And I said, yeah, of course, man, I love your band. And so he filed that away and we sure. just carried on with our dinner. And it was months and months later, like uh, this was probably in fall of uh, 83. Um, or And then in, in, you know, early 84, he called me again um, in May and said, hey, why don't you come back up, do some jam, and maybe I'll get the guys together. We'll play a little bit with the band. And, of course, Bruce is very low-key, so I didn't bug him about it. But yeah. I thought, why is he getting the band together? <laughs> I thought maybe that might be an audition. And rather than grill him about it, I just said, sure, 
Yeah. Um, we made a plan for me to get there. And uh, Lance Quinn, actually, I was doing this pre-production for Flip up in Philly. And Lance Quinn, amazing guitar player and producer, bless his soul. He uh, He's a pilot and he flew me in a two-seater, little rickety two-seater, yeah. scared the hell out of me. Yeah, no thank you. I landed in this airfield, uh, you know, about an hour south of, oh, I don't know, 40 minutes out south of Bruce's home. He picked me up and we drove up to his house, spent a few days playing with the band. And he said, yeah, you know, Stevie's, looks like Stevie's doing his solo thing. He's going to go do his solo album and tour. And, uh, you know, this is four weeks. This is a month before opening night. And I said, well, look, I'm, I'm doing this pre-production for an album. So, you know, just let me know when, when you know either way. And he said, yeah, let's, let's play a couple of days. I may need a week or so to, you know, check out some other people or whatever we do. And I'll let you know as soon as I know. And I said, that'd be a big help. And I, I'll go get back to doing what I'm doing. And we jammed for a couple of days and, uh, you know, it felt good. And interestingly now, you know, I had been at his home months earlier, listening to born in the USA, the entire weekend. I loved the record. I had a friend in Maryland, a bootlegger, Tom beach, who was one of these honorable, honorable record traders who didn't sell stuff. Right. Okay. Collected. And he had like hundreds and hundreds of East street shows. And he was kind enough to come to my house and I write out some chord maps mm-hmm. to like promised land, Badlands, thunder road, you know, things that of course they're going to play. Sure. Just as a courtesy. So if we played together, you know, I didn't have to ask Gary to yell the chords in my ear while we're trying to play, you know, just to try to be professional about it. But Tom Beach, I don't know how he did it. And he was even scared to have it because, of course, it was such a big uh, anticipated release. He had a bootleg cassette of the Born USA album that I spent a weekend listening. That's to. crazy. And I said, how the hell did you get that? He said, I can't even tell you. <laughs> and he said, and I can't I can't lend it to you. <laughs> I said, Hey, you sit here with it while I write out some chords. He said, I could do that. Wow. So in my old mom and dad's home in Potomac, Maryland, I sat there and wrote out chords to songs I listened to, mm-hmm. you know, with Bruce. So when I went up there, it was interesting because this is the first time the East Street Band had played songs from that album that was yet to be released. Yeah. So they were kind of relearning them. And I was sitting here already having some chord charts for them. <laughs> which kind of, you know, nobody busted me, but we played for two days. It felt pretty good. I mean, obviously I was the, the rookie and the, the guy that, you know, was not up to speed, but I love to play. I love being in great bands and, you know, that show too. So anyway, end of the second day, I go out, I get ready to head back home, figuring I'll hear from Bruce in a week or whatever. And he, unbeknownst to me, he goes around, talks with all the guys inside, feels good to them. He walks out front and says, hey, talk to all the guys. Feels pretty good to us. Want to join the East Street Band? <laughs> and I was like, I'm, you mean join the band now? I said, yeah. And I talked to everyone. It feels good. I, you know, of course, I'm thinking to myself, well, thought I wouldn't hear, hear from them for a week and they'd try other players. And I said, you mean like rush home, get my bags, come back up and start putting the tour together? <laughs> he said, yeah. like <laughs> I said, bless you, man. I'd love to. We gave each other a hug and went to Maryland, turned around, came back up and, you know, had this room I isolated in in Bruce's house and just 
24-7, had the boombox playing back wow. and forth. I banged all music and just studied Bruce's stuff. And a month later, we started opening night, and we were off to the races with that beautiful tour and beautiful album. Yeah, when, you, uh, when you're touring with Bruce Springsteen, you're not just learning 15 songs. You're learning <laughs> who knows how many, because those well, set yeah, lists are 25 to 30 songs a night. Yeah. Yeah, he went easy on me and gave me an initial list of about 65 songs. In fact, it's funny because, um, well, you know, look, he's famous. He never follows the set list. Yeah. And, uh, you know, nor does Neil Young, by the way. But um, and we're always improvising, taking signs from the audience, playing songs we've never played. And uh, I think it was the uh, might have been the Wrecking Ball tour. We uh, played 267 different songs. That's incredible. That one tour. And um I remember too, funny, Tom Morello, who, um, you know, subbed in for Stevie uh, when Stevie was filming Lily Hammer. We did Australia and got to be really good friends with Tom and his wife, uh, Denise and Amy. Uh, he was just in town here in Scottsdale. They had to get out of the L.A. fires. You know, he took a trip with his family and came here. We just had a visit in our yard socially. Just Sure. But I loved working with Tom. He was great. And then, you know. We, we At one point, Stevie came back. We had four guitar players. Because High Hopes was an album featuring Tom on guitar. Monday morning runs up, Sunday night screaming. Slow me down before the New Year dies. Well, it won't take much to kill her. Love and smile and every mother with a baby crying in her arms saying, give me help, give me strength, give a soul a night I fell asleep, give me love, give me peace, don't you know these days you pay for But um, one of my still best lines in my 36, seven years in the band, I think um, it was Tom's first tour and kind of the same thing. Bruce tried to go on, go easy on him and gave him a list of 45 songs. He was always studying. You know, I had my chord charts out. You know, Max Weinberg used to say, it looks like I'm in the Berkeley School of Music here. <laughs> Everyone sitting here with chord charts, capos and talking, you know, parts. And it was fun because 
you know, I got all this help when I joined the band from the guys. And so now here was Tom and we all helped him as best we could. And of course I had a lot of charts and experience as a guitar player. So Tom would, uh, Tom and I would talk through a lot of stuff. There was one night where on the way to the stage, which, which wasn't infrequent, Bruce would change the first song before we even got on stage. And it was one of those nights where we all looked at each other, like the set list, which is just an idea of his, was co- we realized was completely useless. Like the set list <laughs> taped to the ground to Forget look at. It. And it was just one, Im- you know, one song after another that wasn't on the list, signs from the audience. Bruce was just calling out things we hadn't played in 15 years. And, uh, you know, about, you know, an hour plus into the show in the dark, because we were really moving fast, Bruce started talking to the crowd. And Tom ran over to me and, you know, gave me a little tap and leaned in and said, hey, this is the first song I've recognized in an hour and 17 minutes. <laughs> That's great. We both had a good, good laugh. Because, you know, when you're out there, much like when you're jamming in a nightclub, you know, I said, what key are we in? Uh, we're in G. Okay. And then you just use your instincts. And Tom's a great pro. Mm-hmm. You know, not unlike what I did a lot of nights where like, okay, here's a part coming up. I just don't know what it is rather than, you know, play bad chords and kind of do a little mini train wreck for your bandmates. Sometimes you just, you know, okay, look, I don't know what's going on. So I'm just going to go chuck, 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 be like a percussion instrument. Yeah. And add something, but don't mess it up. And then when you get back to the part, you know, go back to playing guitar. And, you know, Tom is as good as that as it gets to. We had a good laugh about it. But that's one of the charms that I think the audience feels, too, when a band leader will really push the band into Mm -hmm. uncharted territory uh, looking for those special moments. Let me ask you a couple questions. Uh, The Flip album. So the Flip album comes out after Born in the USA. But you're but I'm hearing now that it was recorded prior. No, um, Lance Quinn and I were doing pre-production. Pre-production, right? okay. The songs. And then I got the gig with E Street, which was a, a gift. And when and you're Neil Nils, when you're when you're asked to join the E Street band, it's not to fill in for Steve Van Zant, it's to be a member of the E Street band, correct? Well, yeah, but I mean it's not like you sit there and Okay, now what's going to happen in seven years from now? Okay. And what's going to happen if Steve comes back? Right. And what's going to happen if he does? I mean, it's yeah, none of that. You're just enjoying like, in the moment what's happening to yeah, you. Okay. There's a great band that needs a guitar player for a long, long tour. Yes. That starts in four weeks. Okay. That's all I'm thinking about. And then, I'm thinking about past that. And then what's cool is when Steve does come back, you don't get kicked to the curb. You're right there, too. Yeah. So fantastic. In 99, of course, you know, Bruce and and he's great. He called us all and said, look, I'm thinking about reuniting everyone like to get Steve back in, you know, and kind of have a homecoming and uh, wanted to make sure everyone was cool with it. And of course, I mean, you know, excellent. I, I spent my whole early life in the band learning stevie's and bruce's guitar parts yeah <laughs> do my own thing to them but keeping the core of what what they did to the song intact so we got better as a band sure. with Steve's playing and, and in particular is singing you know we got even better when he kind of came back in the band but it's all really organic great stuff cool which, um and you- starts with bruce at the top and he you know he's kept us 
in a really great, powerful place uh, the whole 36, seven years I've been. And you're, and you're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the E Street Band. Yeah, look, I, I never even got invited to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and there you, now you're in. You're in the club. Now I'm as a, a member of the E Street Band, grateful for that. And, you know, you take it with a grain of salt, you know, because any time where, I mean, look, the greatest, probably one of the greatest rock singers in history, Paul Rogers, is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So yeah, go figure. I know. I it's, mean, that, there's that's no, just ridiculous. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Okay. And, you know, rolling... Rolling Stone magazine. I mean, look, I've enjoyed many Rolling Stone magazine, but they'll come out with, you know, the top 100 singers in history. And, you know, they'll get Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin right, of course. Sure. You know, they should be, uh, you know, t- right near the top of the list. I think Aretha was number one correctly. But then then you look through the list and you realize, like, people are like, ah, you're not in the top 100 guitar players. That's <laughs> That's upsetting. And I'm like, well... If you look at the top 100 singers, they don't have Sting or Chrissy Hine. <laughs> right. Now, so take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. I mean, how, I mean, look, it's when you get into a popularity contest, it's always there's pros and cons mm-hmm. to it. However, Bruce invited us to play with him when he was inducted. So I got to go and, you know, get the red carpet treatment. Sure. And it was nice. And then to take Amy when the band got inducted was beautiful and to have a chance to see the East Street Band honor, which was long overdue. For sure. But you know, like I say, you take it with a grain of salt because there's some great, great players and singers that should have been in there 20 years ago that aren't. But hey, it is what it is. And it's a cool thing to be a part of. And, and it was a fun night to to go and, and enjoy a few few nights in New York City with Amy and, and see my bandmates and myself included get inducted. It's a good party. It's a good party. <laughs> so I, I keep jumping away from Flip. So Flip was eventually released on Columbia Records. All right. All right. What happened was we finished a long run in Europe. Mm-hmm. There was going to be six and a half solid weeks off. So Lance Quinn and I made a plan. Literally, I went from the last show. I stayed one extra day to do Live Aid just as a singer at the end. I got to be at Live Aid. That's, that's amazing. It blew my mind because, because you know, I, I wasn't performing. All I was was singing along. So I had an all-area pass, which I still get a kick out of. I could go anywhere and everywhere. I had a great seat in the audience. I went from the audience backstage, watched all these amazing musical heroes of mine practicing, putting shit together, worrying about it. I had no responsibilities other than to walk out at the end for the sing-along. And it was this beautiful eight-hour day in concert with a lot of my friends and heroes. Then I immediately flew to Philly and spent six weeks day and night, 18 hour days with Lance Quinn to record, mix and finish the flip album, which came out that fall at the end of the Boeing USA tour. And I put my flip band together and hit the road in, in uh, Europe. And you were, you were signed to Columbia records before born in the USA, or did that signing happen because of your association? No, that's another funny story because again, this is a few years now of not being able to get a record. Right. So Lance Quinn and I were talking to like a, some smaller companies. I was going to sign a smaller deal with somebody just to make a record and get back in the game a bit. Soon as I got the job in the East street band, all of a sudden one day at a rehearsal, uh, John Landau, another dear friend and, and good supporter of my music wrote a nice review for me in 75 
had a long interview with John and, you know, I was very overwhelmed and happy and excited to be in the band, putting the Born USA tour together. But John said, Hey, um, uh, uh, what was his name? Teller, the president of CBS. Uh, Al, um, Al Teller. Al Teller. Yeah. Said, Hey, just so you know, um, I know, uh, Alvin knows you're looking for, you were looking for a record deal and you may hear from him. I just want to give you a heads up. So Al Teller, I think it's Al, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. He calls me at home and um, I'm grateful, you know, he said, Hey, I'm so happy you're in the band. And of course now this is their big act. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen right. band, putting a great album out. Everyone's excited. Dancing in the dark sounds like at least one hit single and they're going to do a long tour. So this is a record company's dream. And now I'm in the band and uh, I'm sure that there was, you know, plenty of politics involved because for three or four years I'd been to Columbia and uh, you know, like the, what the Rolling Stone call him, the assistant West coast A&R promotion <laughs> man or something. Right. You know, I went, tried to get somebody to listen to my tapes and they said, we're not interested in you. Go away. Unbelievable. And that's okay. But now the president is calling me in my little house in Gaithersburg, Maryland, as I'm, you know, quickly going back to Jersey. I said, look, um, I know you're a free agent looking for a record deal. And uh, I think you got a home here with us at Columbia. And I'd really like to, you know, talk to you about signing up with us. And of course, my first reaction is, oh my gosh, Al, that's great. Um, you know, I've got these demo tapes and I'm going to, you know, get them together. Uh, give me the address or Give me your secretary. I'll send them to you. You guys can listen, see what you think. You know, let yeah. me know where you're at. And and I'll never forget. He said, oh, Nils, we'll worry about that stuff later. Let's just sign a deal. <laughs> and uh, I thought to myself, man, welcome to show business. Yeah, that's a sweet spot to be oh, in. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I was grateful. But, you know, I also, of course, it might have made sense that, Hey, let's not, you know, because Nils has been making solo records since the late 60s. Let's not have some other company sign him right. and cause trouble for Bruce. Maybe right. there was that thought that went into it since the music was a secondary issue. But I understand all of this, too. And I'm not trying to point fingers or talk down to anyone. Yeah. I'm just a kid that grew up in the music business and it still is a business. That's why um, I was grateful for the record to come out. It came out. You know, they gave it some attention and some ads. I went and played and promoted Secrets in the Streets. You had a video for Secrets in the Streets? Yeah. Yes, and Lance Quinn did a great job producing mm -hmm. it. Andy Newmark played on it. And um, so it, it was a great chapter all the way around. 
And then, you know, fast forward to the early 90s, I had a run in with a company I was on, spent a year and a half getting a release. This was I left Columbia. Uh, and once I got a release, uh, it was Rikodisc. I made a record or two for Rikodisc. Once I got my release, I realized, thanks to the Internet, that I just um, didn't like the oppressive hands on approach of people having too much to say about the music I was making. Right. And I understand the concept like, look, it's our money. You've got to listen to our ideas because you don't make us money. So you're going to listen and this will be a joint effort. And I'm like, well, if it's a joint effort with uh, accountants that are now producers, I'm not sure if my heart can be in that. Right. Like, well, it doesn't matter because that's the deal. And I understand that, but I took the opportunity to get a release, took me a year and a half, hard work with a lawyer, and I got my freedom, and I've never gone back. So you're uh, you're like you're like an independent guy now. Independent since the uh, mid '90s, we got Amy and I have Cattle Track Road Records, a little street here um, in old you know Old Town, Arizona, Cattle Track, and we make music, put it out, and share it. I have a great dis- distributor, MVD, that helps me get it in mom and pop shops and out there. And it's great because then I do what I want when I want, share it and face the music, good or bad, on my own without you know record company involvement. And for me, that was the way to go in the early 90s and where, where I've been since then. Now, Nils, some of your albums, though, we cannot find even digitally. The Nils album and Night Fades Away that was produced by Jeff Skunk Baxter. Black albums we can't we can't even find them digitally how do we get how do fans get some of this music that you made yeah i know i i've been trying to talk to the companies to let me buy the music back from them and they've just been not receptive to that i think there's a japanese company that has managed to package all those records i'm not sure about those two mm-hmm. in a you know two they're charging too much but in a form out of japan I think they might have found the rights to that. I have to check on that. I'm not that up to speed. I have to ask my manager, Tom. But, um, yeah, that's the tricky thing. You know, when you're a kid, you sign your life away. And, you know, getting the rights back is not easy to do. I thought it'd just be a case of making a deal. Like, you know, yeah. let me pay $5 a record and just <laughs> make CDs. But a lot of times they're just not interested in doing the footwork or, you know, you're out of print. And I would have thought there'd be a right-to-work clause. But I've been down all those rose and look i'm making the best of what i got sure after 52 years all in all got a fabulous wife my dogs my son's okay down the road um hopefully i'll start writing another record i got a new live album out on cattle track road records at my website nilsoffman.com there's a lot of free music and video there to check out so all in all i've done pretty well you're still making a living doing what you love to do and when that happens it's not work 
Yeah, and I'm a band guy, you know, and I've, I've been in some of the great bands in history, and I'm currently in, in two of the better ones, Crazy Horse and East Street Band, and very proud of that. Well, let me wrap it up with two questions. First of all, will the Face the Music box set ever come back into print? Oh, I love that box set. That's my favorite release. God bless Fantasy Records. They let me handpick the best of 50 years. We got like, you know, two CDs filled up with bonus tracks, yeah. rarity, basement tapes, got a DVD on there. And I wrote a 138 page book, closest thing to a book I'll ever write, going song by song and all the little side trips I took. Um, when they ran out of them, they're, they're way too expensive yeah. on eBay. Yeah, that's the Holy Grail. Yeah. And, and, you know, when, when, when I asked for them to produce more, um, you know, we, I was just going to pay to make more, mm -hmm. but they said we'd make them in China and the, uh, the, the, um, the minimum order is 600 and it'll cost you $70,000. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, man. Can't, can I just buy 50 of them? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's the rub. Maybe someday if I win the lottery or Bruce goes back on tour, <laughs> I'll try to get another order well, of those. Good, because I'm still I'm still trying to get my hot little hands on one, so I'll keep trying. It was really, you know, Amy. They were really great because they had a lot of good people on the um, art side, yeah. the music. Side. They gave me a lot of ideas, but they always deferred to us. And Amy oversaw all the artwork, picked the cover photo, and you know got to approve and have hands on and all that. While I did the music, and my theme was it took me many many months. Um, cause I get tired of listening to my old self. So I wanted to be able to leave out songs so that whatever was on the box that I could listen to the whole thing front to end and enjoy it. Nice. And I was able to do that. And it was really a rare thing and a nice gift fantasy gave me. Okay. And wrapping it up, you've done seven studio albums with Bruce Springsteen. We're a month out from hearing letter to you. To summon all that my heart finds true and send it in my letter to you. Is there anything that you are allowed to tell us about this record? Was it recorded before COVID, obviously? Well, it was right at the, uh, yeah, it was just, just when COVID was starting to rear its head in the winter, I think. Um, it was just a very uh, uh, unusual time because it had been, a look, we made a lot of great records starting with The Rising. It was really the first full record the right. band made together. Did some Woody Guthrie tributes, Pete Seeger's songs, the sound checks in Born USA. You know, little bits and bobs, um, but that was really uh, the first full record we made together. And, you know, the rhythm section would go down, you know, Roy, Gary and Max and Bruce, and they do these great tracks. And then I go down and play for three or four days. Stevie, I go back down, sing with Susie and, and um, Patty. Uh, but this was the first time we'd all been in the same room together, playing together. Geez, I mean, maybe since darkness, 
you know? Yeah. And it really showed. I mean, the, the band just hit a groove, really felt special. And uh, Bruce was singing live, you know, in a booth with a window so we could see him, but isolate his voice because we were all kind of loud. <laughs> and uh, we caught some great feels and great grooves. And, you know, the songwriting's brilliant. Um, I, I just feel great about the record. I think it's a really special record. I, I know the intent was to wait maybe till later in the year and then hit the road. But with COVID and the unending, you know, problems we have, and now we're, you know, living in a, you know, racist dictatorship, trying, <laughs> trying to see if we can get a fledgling democracy back, which is no easy feat. Yeah. Very frightening stuff. Um, I'm really glad Bruce decided let's, you know, even though we may not get to play for quite a while, yeah. let's share the music. And I, I'm so grateful it's coming out and I'm excited for everyone to hear it. Well, you know, we, uh, the great thing about, you don't have to go anywhere to, to get new music. You can, you can download it. You can buy it right from your home so you can stay safe and indoors and still enjoy, you know, what you guys are giving us. So the fans appreciate yeah, hope, it for sure. Yeah. I hope uh, the new double live CD weathered people check it out. Millsoffman.com or backstreets.com. It's on all the sites and, uh, it really feels great, man. My, my brother and Andy and Kevin and Cindy Mizell, we turned Cindy loose past just singing. I said, scat, if you get an idea, just scat around and add vocals. She became another instrument in yeah. the band. Did a beautiful job. So really proud of it. And it is live. So I'm hoping until we can get out and play that this will you know, be a live take of something really special we did last year to share with everybody. I hope everyone checks out. You can also follow Nils at Nils Lofgren on Twitter. And Nils, I'll be inserting music into the episode in post-production any song we talked about i'll insert a little clip is there a song from weathered that you would like me to play as our playout song yeah you know um i think a song that really just you know kind of got an ominous lou reed you know warning lyric but has a great vibe and, and beat to it and cindy does a great duet with me uh love to play out with uh don't let your guard down you got it Nils, thank you so much for your time. My best to your dogs, my best to Amy, and continued success in 2021 when we see you on the road or the E Street Band on the road. Yeah, Patrick, thanks so much for uh, spreading the word on my new record and everybody out there listening. God bless you all. The only reason I've gotten to do this for 52 years is because you all keep showing up. You're the lifeblood of what we do, coming to see us play live. And let's all live in the hope that we're going to get some smart adults in there with compassion and great ideas and turn all this around. Yes. And we'll be safe and get out and sing and play for you soon. And go by weathered. Thank you so much, Nils. You have a great day. God bless you, Patrick. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. All right. That was the great Nils Lofgren. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Once again, please go to NilsLofgren.com for all things about Nils or follow him on Twitter, at Nils Lofgren. The new album is called Weathered. It's a great live album. If you're not familiar with Nils Lofgren's music, this is a great introduction. Also, Blue with Lou is out there, his studio album from last year. And again, you can follow us at Rock Solid Show. Go to rocksolidpodcast.com for all things about the show. And follow Kyle on Kyle Dotson Funny. And as requested by the great Nils Lofgren, here's our playout song from Blue with Lou. And from the live album Weathered, please enjoy Don't Let Your Guard Down. Mm -hmm.
Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.